Hey everyone, Chris Garlock here. Patrick and I kind of got carried away this week and wound up with clips from eight shows. None of them are that long, but we're going to dispense with the usual teasers and just jump right in. Here it is, the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Thousands of workers swarm the streets of Los Angeles. Construction workers are getting a raise thanks to the Biden administration. And the AMPTP says, let's try this one more time. I'm Harold Phillips, and this is Labor Week for August 12th, 2023. Powered by the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Come on, it's Welcome to another episode of Labor Week, featuring a roundup of the top worker and organized labor headlines from the past week. As always, you'll find links to the articles I mentioned in the show notes or at laborweek.org. The big labor news of the week was thousands of striking municipal workers hitting the streets in Los Angeles for a one-day strike, with SAG-AFTRA, WGA, and Unite Here workers, among others, swelling their ranks. The Associated Press reported that picket lines went up before dawn at Los Angeles International Airport and other locations, and a large rally was held later in the morning downtown at City Hall. SEIU Local 721 told the AP that mechanics, engineers, and airport custodians were among the more than 11,000 L.A. City workers who were striking. Let's stay in Los Angeles, where hotel workers have had enough of hotel security roughing them up. The Los Angeles Times reports that Monday, hundreds of hotel workers rallied in downtown Los Angeles to protest what their union described in a labor complaint as a pattern of violent incidents and property destructions at picket lines where workers have been on strike. And, you know, there is one other little industrial action centered in Los Angeles right now. Well, two when you think about it. I'm talking, of course, about the Writers Guild of America strike, which passed the 100-day mark this week, and the SAG-AFTRA strike. You might remember last week I told you the Hollywood studios and streaming companies were finally coming back to the bargaining table with the Writers Guild. Well, the results of last Friday's meeting were less than satisfactory. The Hollywood Reporter shared the news that members of the WGA have called the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers' attempt to restart negotiations, quote, insulting and out of touch, unquote. According to the Writers Guild memo to its members after the Friday meeting, As always, you'll find links to the articles mentioned in this edition of Labor Week in the show notes and at laborweek.org. Looking to take a deeper dive into some of these stories? You'll probably find it in one of the nearly 200 shows in the Labor Radio Podcast Network, like We Rise Fighting. Find out more about the Labor Radio Podcast Network and find your new favorite podcast, besides this one, at laborradionetwork.com. Labor Week is produced and edited by me, Carol Phillips, under a SAG-AFTRA micropod agreement. Our music is from Batitudes, Joe Hill Punk Exposure. Find out more about Batitudes at facebook.com slash Batitudes. Check the link in our show notes.
I'll see you next week. Hello, brothers, sisters, and friends. Welcome to the You Are the Current Resident podcast. This is the official podcast of the National Association of Letter Carriers, the union that represents 280,000 active and retired city letter carriers employed by the United States Postal Service. I'm Ed Morgan, and sitting next to me is our national president, Brian Renfro. Hey, Brian, how are you? Doing great, Eddie. Glad to be with you again. We want to get into questions about HIP, the Heat Illness Prevention Program. Just on a basic level, I, I think it's pretty evident. Uh, it's actually scientific fact that the temperatures go up every year. So the hazard that in uh, the majority of the country we face every summer, uh, that letter cares face in terms of working in the extreme heat, as it continues to grow, um, there's a diligence that's required in order for us to be safe. And over the years, there have been a number of instances of OSHA filing citations. And they decided back, I think, around 2018, rather than issue citations and try to, quote, prosecute each of these cases individually, that OSHA would group them together. And their goal was to push the Postal Service into a place where they had to develop a national heat illness prevention program. Without kind of nerding out and going in in depth on all of the litigation that took place that we were involved in with our attorneys, I testified in a lot of those proceedings. OSHA was not successful. However, the Postal Service did decide, I think just based on the fact that this had been a recurring issue, obviously a lot of conversation and pressure from us and collective bargaining and other areas, that they would develop a national HIP to protect employees. We worked with them. You could say in some sense that it's a negotiated agreement. So what was the Postal Service supposed to do with the training this year? So every year, by April 1st, every city carrier and manager is supposed to be trained on the elements of this HIP. This is crucial, not just because, you know, of course people need to know about the plan itself and, and you know, whose responsibilities are, are what, all of that type stuff, but it's also important for on an individual basis for our members to understand the symptoms, to understand the warning signs and the things that they can look for if they're out there working in excessive heat. Because what we've seen in a lot of cases where we have folks that suffer from heat illness is it's the type of illness that often before you understand or realize that you are becoming ill, it's too late. You're already past the point of mitigation, let's call it, where if you were to recognize those signs, You can take breaks, you can get into a shaded area, an air-conditioned area, obviously drinking water. I mean, kind of common sense things, but the body doesn't always feel it unless you're aware of what those signs are. So that education piece is, is very important, not just for the plan in general, but also for the individual just to understand what they should look for and if they begin to feel a certain way, the steps they should take to protect themselves. All right, Brian. That's going to end the show for this week. Thank you again for listening. May your steward be by your side and your union have your back. Thanks. Welcome to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Let's go to New York City right now. 
And as I indicated at the top of the show, Joyce Goldstein taking a few months off and filling in for the next couple of months is Andrew Strom. No stranger to the show. He's been on a number of times. He's a union lawyer for more than uh, 25 years. You know, he does serve as an associate general counsel at the Service Employees International Union, local 32BJ, which is located in New York City. But he is not speaking on their behalf. Andrew Strom, welcome uh, back to America's Workforce. And uh, I guess there's a case that's uh, that they're going to hear this fall. Loper Bright versus Raimondo. It's not a labor case, as I pointed out earlier. But again, it could affect workers. Can you explain what's going on here, Andrew? Sure. And I think it is, a, you know, a kind of case that could easily be under you know, slip under people's radar screen, because when I tell you what it's about, you know, people are going to start rolling their eyes and saying, you know, why should I care? Uh, so Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo involves a federal agency that I'm sure most of your listeners uh, didn't, don't even know exists. It's called the National Marine Fisheries Service. And the question in this case is whether they can require the fishing companies to pay for the monitors or not. You might think, okay, that's an important issue for them, but why should anybody else care? Because this whole right-wing industry, which is really about big business and billionaires, uh, has ginned this case up as an important case. And there are 50 amicus briefs filed already in support of the industry's position in this case. And amicus briefs are briefs filed by people who don't have a direct stake in the case, but are writing to say, this issue is important to our organization. This issue is important beyond this. And so here you have the National Right to Work Legal Defense Fund, the Chamber of Commerce, um, a bunch of employer associations, a bunch of right-wing think tanks. They've all filed briefs in this case. And what the issue that the court is going to decide is going to go far beyond this one agency Loper Bright is asking the court to overrule a 40-year-old precedent, a unanimous decision, uh, in a case called Chevron versus National Resources Defense Council. And what that case deals with is the power of administrative agencies and how courts should approach challenges to decisions that are made by those agencies. Because Congress gave broad-ranging powers to administrative agencies, and those agencies then filled in, rule by rule by rule, Congress's policy outlines. Right? So that's, right. that's what's at stake. And then in particular, you know, obviously for workers, is the National Labor Relations Board. There's one paragraph in the National Labor Relations Act that gives workers rights. Right? It's an unfair labor practice, illegal, for employers to, quote, interfere with, restrain, or coerce employees in the exercise of those rights. Which they do right? all the time. <laughs> Which they do all the time. But the yeah. important point is, right, that, you know, Congress didn't say what specifically that means, right? So nothing in the text of the law says it's illegal for employers to spy on union meetings, to interrogate workers about whether they support the union, to promise benefits, right, or you know, or to prevent workers from wearing buttons or any of the other hundreds of different ways, right, that employers can interfere with, restrain, or coerce workers, right? Mm -hmm. That was up to the NLRB to fill in those gaps, right, over time, right? With the, you know, the National Labor Relations Act has been around since 1935. So over those years, you know, they've seen hundreds of different scenarios where, and they have to make these decisions right. about, um, and, 
the, you know, and one of the things is that there's a balancing, right? And it's, they're basically policy decisions, right? There's a balancing, but that's what this power grab is all about is who decides, Andrew Strom joining us on our live line today. He is the Associate General Counsel for the Service Employees International Union, Local 32BJ, speaking on behalf of On Labor, service of the Harvard Law School. That concludes another episode of the America's Workforce Radio Podcast. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe so you never miss a show. Welcome back to the Rick Smith Show. Now, here is Rick Smith. Let's go to the phone lines. Got Steve in Chicago on line one. Steve, how are you? Fine, thank you. And I wanted to to talk about the connections between, say, for instance, uh, country music as an art form, and what you were what you were referring to in terms of uh, what position it has in terms of our culture and in terms of uh, the working class movement. I would argue that more so than any other musical form, it it has uh, ties to the to the working class movement uh, in a way that no that no other form does. And and for generations, you know, this these were the artists that were singing about the plight of the of the working man, and and what they uh, what they owed to the system, and how they couldn't get ahead, and how you get paid and go back and give it all to the company store, and 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 these are this was the kind of art form that helped to bring many of these people to unions and bought and bought them to the Democratic Party, but as union strength has eroded, and union membership has declined. Uh, Republicans have been successfully able to peel these people off uh, based on a number of, of different tactics, not the least of which is thing, are things like social issues, uh, single voter issues like abortion and gun rights and so forth. And because let's face it, these these individuals who are from the old Rust Belt and part of the South, they were never voting Democrat because of our positions on race, on gender on on sexual orientation none of these things you know as a matter of fact that they were they would hold their nose on those issues and vote for us uh in many ways so when they no longer saw themselves as being represented by uh, by the democrats because again the, the unions were no longer uh, serving the same role that they did say in 1970 in this country then they they felt the, they felt they had no allegiance to the democratic party and uh, and it allowed the republican party to peel them away so, and, and you're absolutely correct. The question is, how do we get them back to, to realizing that their interest lies in, 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 the same, in the same camp as other people who may not look like them? They might not go to the same church. They might not be the same skin color. They might not be of the same ethnic origin. But nonetheless, they are all in the same pot when it comes to being part of the working class or working poor in this country or even the middle class. And yet somehow Republicans have convinced them that they have more in common with a CEO than they do with some guy who, who is a different color or ethnicity who lives across the street from them. No, you're spot on. And this is this is the mastery of what, what Republicans have done. And and I got to tell you, the failure of the Democratic Party to give them a reason. And you're, you're spot on right. And I go back to the Clinton era. You know, as people were losing their factory jobs, this, hey, just go get an education. That doesn't fly. Because, you know, what are you going to do with somebody in their 50s uh, who had a job making 70, 80 grand a year? Now you're going to train them to, to go back to almost minimum wage? Uh, that's a slap in the face. Good stuff, Steve. I mean, I'm right there with you. You've been listening to The Rick Smith Show. Email Rick, Email Rick. at rick at com. Until next time, this has been The Rick Smith Show.
where working people come to talk. Welcome to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. And this is our August 12th, 2023 show. And you are listening to KFGM 101.5 FM, Frenchtown, full-powered Missoula Community Radio, live streaming on 1015kfgm.org. For today's show, we will interview participants in the Biennial National Convention of the Democratic Socialists of America. On August 4th through the 6th, about 1,000 delegates and hundreds of others from all over the United States and the world gathered in Chicago to vote on organizational priorities, to choose national political committee members who will govern the national organization until the next convention in 2025. Perhaps the most important purpose of the convention was to hear about the organizing work from the over 200 chapters across the country present. Next, we have a roundtable discussion of members of the Red Labor DSA Caucus, Jacob, Austin Ray, Alex, Zeth Rourke, and Kent Kaiser, who will describe their vision and organizing strategy for an independent labor party in the U.S. I'm Kent Kaiser um, from Boise. Also in the Red Labor uh, Caucus. In fact, I helped found the thing. And uh, I'm in uh, the AFT chapter, or local, <laughs> 3537, um, which has been certainly a adventure, I'll tell you that. But I think one of the most adventure, uh, most uh, interesting adventures was you know, helping found the Red Labor Caucus and enter into um, what has come out to be a heck of a fight in the last four years, you know, about um, what it means to have a rank-and-file strategy within organized labor and what it means to really think about a socialist labor party. And if I may ask, uh, Red Labor, is that the, the, the central purpose of, the, of that caucus? Yeah, I think the, the central purpose is to present a perspective which has not been present in the U.S. left for a very long time. Um, and specifically, that perspective is a clean break. Now, I'm not saying that, a clean break from the Democratic Party okay. right? and, and, found, and founding a new party. Now, I'm not saying other organizations in the left haven't been calling for that. You know, there's plenty of Marxist organizations, particularly Trotskyist organizations, which have called for this for a long time. But unfortunately, um, you can't walk up to anyone anymore and say, oh, I'm part of, name, one of the thousand Trotskyist groups, and, uh, and this is what I stand for, and for anybody to really understand them anymore, because there's about a thousand groups that all call themselves the same thing, um, and mean something completely different by it every time, you know? So I think what Red Labor is interested in doing is talking about that workers' party, a party of the working people that can give leadership to the small farmers and all the people in rural America as well, and at the same time um, enter into the battle for democracy and enter into the battle for workers' and farmers' government. You know, and so we've kind of turned back the, uh, you know, we've turned back the clock a little bit, uh, and we've said, okay, maybe we need to restart and kind of start our own thing and shed some of the baggage which has existed in the left here in the United States and think about how we can fight for that in a creative way and hopefully meet other young people that are interested in doing that as well. Well, thanks 
for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this show. And uh, please make a contribution to Missoula Community Radio and help keep all of the great programs we have on the air. Just go to our website at www.1015kfgm.org and you can make it there. Most everyone associated with Missoula Community Radio do so without pay. We are volunteering our time, so please volunteer a few dollars. Thanks. Please join us every week on Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. Think about the voices here in the community. Reaching out for hope, looking for the opportunity. Living through this life, trying to make the best for you and me. 122, stand in solidarity. But solidarity, brothers. This brothers is solidarity. This is solidarity. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah. So, hey, uh, Dr. West. My name is Juan Perez. I'm a organizing monster on TikTok, um, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and this is. Professor West, it's really great to see you. My name is Chris Lopez. I am your union brother on TikTok, Instagram, all the platforms. This is very exciting to have you here today. So, uh, Dr. West, real quick. Um, so, as a as a labor union organizer myself, I'm interested in your stance on the role of unions in today in today's society. Can you elaborate on your vision? For, for the future of unions here in America. You know, I'm very much a part, a small part of the legacy of, uh, of Martin Luther King Jr. and Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, and what that means is, is that I'm, I'm an abolitionist when it comes to poverty. I want, I want to eliminate poverty. I want to eliminate homelessness. What does that mean? That means, first and foremost, treating people with dignity treating them with the sanctity that they have. I'm a Christian, too. I believe they made the image of God. And therefore, a fundamental commitment to organizations that themselves are deeply committed to the dignity of poor and working people. And trade unions historically have been the most significant organized forces against the greed at the top, greed of bosses, Read of property owners, but of course, like any institution, you know, you got you know business unionists who themselves too often compromise. You've got uh, you've got heroic, courageous leaders who want to put workers first rather than the bureaucracy. So you, so they're like any institution that have these internal. But I cannot conceive of an abolitionist project when it comes to poverty and homelessness, when it comes to fighting for living wages, when it comes to Medicare for all, when it comes to quality education, when it comes to quality housing. I cannot conceive of my campaign, let alone my life, without trade unions playing an indispensable and crucial role. And that's one of the reasons why trade unions often are so directly attacked by the powers that be, especially at the top in the workplace. You know, Taft-Hartley ain't no joke that when trade unions were escalating, when they were getting stronger, the attack takes place. I've seen that in the Black Freedom Movement, too. Once we get stronger, our organizational capacity gets deeper, the attacks intensify. And so what's wonderful about the legacy of Martin, Fannie Lou, and others is that they always understood 
ways in which trade unions as sites for solidarity tied to working people goes hand in hand with uh, struggles against forms of racism, forms of xenophobia, any ideology that loses sight of people, the Arab, the Muslims, the Jews, or gay brothers, or lesbian sisters, or trans, anybody who's vulnerable, there is a moral dimension, and I would even say spiritual dimension of a trade union movement that says, look, solidarity begins with we workers, but it actually ends up embracing all of those who are being assaulted and attacked in an unfair and an unjust way. Hey, everybody. Juan Perez, Organizing Monster. I'm Chris Lopez, your union brother on TikTok. And everything costs money, so we need your money. Subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash union or bust. For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. I'm proud. I'm proud. I am proud. I'm proud to be Union Strong. To be Union Strong. Be Union Strong. Be Union Strong. I'm a teacher, and I'm Union Strong. I wouldn't have it any other way. There's been a recent surge in union activity all across the country as more workers decide to join a union and more workers are speaking up for better wages and better working conditions. Also, more workers are making the difficult decision to strike in order to achieve those goals. And workers are winning. Support for unions is the highest it's been in decades. And unionized workers are making huge gains with improved wages and improved conditions at the workplace. On this podcast, we're taking a closer look at union activity in the western region of New York State, where unionization has been on the rise. And it's also the home of the first unionized Starbucks that set into motion a wave of unionization at Starbucks stores across the country. My guest is the president of the Western New York Area Labor Federation, Peter DeJesus. Peter, thank you for joining me on the Union Strong podcast. Happy to be here with you today, Darcy. Thank you. I mentioned at the beginning of the program that um, you've seen an uptick in unionization there in your region. Um, what do you what do you attribute that to? What's going on out in the Buffalo region? Yes, so absolutely. There has absolutely been an uptick here in Western New York. You know, we're one of few locations in the U.S. with a rising unionization uh, in the service, mainly in the service and healthcare sector. Um, you know, we're approximately about twenty four percent union density uh, compared to twenty twenty percent in New York State. Uh, and 11% nationwide. Uh, and I think that's attributed to the, you know, to the intentionality to which we've kind of built the relationships uh, uh, here in Western New York and the foundation to which this organization has been created on. Like I said, we have a long history of, of traditional manufacturing, right, trade unions. Uh, you think of the old Bethlehem Steels of the world, uh, you know, the DuPonts, the General Motors, the Fords, they are all located here. Uh, so there is a solid foundation to which, you know, this organizing is happening. Uh, you know, and, and we're seeing, uh, you know, when we talk about, well, who are these workers that are, are unionizing now, right? We're seeing kind of the the, the fruits of that intentional uh, relationship building across sectors, right? Um, and, and it's paying dividend. We're seeing, you know, these younger workers that are coming to the non-traditional sectors, such as the coffee, you know, the Starbucks, and see, which is not, it's, it's not a fluke, right? I think we all have to remember that. You know, the, the, the premise of the Starbucks organizing was actually a smaller shop called Spot Coffee here locally. Uh, that was the test run to which this whole Starbucks campaign has been built on. Um, you know, and, and you know, we, we take pride here in Western New York and those uh, those historic relationships that we have, those um, 
historic unions that we had, the traditional blue bloods, I call them, that rep, you know, the steel workers, uh, things like that, that represented, you know, uh, the folks at the steel mill. So this is a traditional uh, manufacturing town uh, with, a, with a long history. This has been a production of the New York State AFL-CIO. Our president is Mario Salento. Our secretary treasurer is Terry Melvin. We're a federation of 3,000 unions representing 2.5 million union members, retirees, and their families with one goal, to raise the standard of living and quality of life of all working people. We keep New York State unions strong by fighting for better wages, better benefits, and better working conditions. For more information on the labor movement in New York, visit nysaflcio.org. Until next time, stay union and stay strong. Welcome to the Flight Deck, a leading edge podcast. I'm Captain Michael Wilson, and today is Captain Garth Thompson. How you doing, Garth? Hi, Michael. Good, yourself? I'm doing good. So you're coming off a pretty big whirlwind of six months. Um, wow. Yeah, it certainly wasn't two weeks, uh, but we got her done. It was uh, uh, quite the grind, and it was a battle, but it was well worth it. So what you did is the one of the very first things you did is we created this thing called the NST, the negotiating support team out of that first meeting. And I think what in, I'd like you to talk about this, because it seems to me this is kind of a testament of where Alpa National and the United MEC, especially under you, really came together and started a focus towards this which seemed a, a lot different than what it had been in the past. Well, I'm, I'm glad you started there and brought that up. And it goes back to that week in Denver where we submitted our first negotiation proposals and assembled the NST to begin work on, you know, working not only as just a negotiating committee, but a, a whole group of, of people to support that. And the concept wasn't ours. We were not too proud to... Uh, learn from the successes of others. And the Delta pilots were very gracious to us and also the Alaska pilots. They were very gracious in, in you know, telling us what went well for them and what they wish they could have done better. And the NST was part of that, where they would stay in close communication and coordination between communications committee, strike committee, and negotiations committee and that was basically what comprises the nst and and we modeled after them and it it proved to be very effective for us you know i remember coming out of that meeting and we went over to delta and those guys at their mec couldn't have been nicer we sat down in a room and they literally opened up and said this is everything that we did how can we help you um just a huge help of where really what unionism is all about. We really came together across the whole spectrum just to focus on how do we help United? Pretty awesome. You know, that's one of the most encouraging things to me. You know, I was on the MEC back in the mid nineties and back then, you know, there was Delta and United and we were uh, adversarial, you know, or, or rivals anyway. I don't know about adversarial, but we just, competed rather than collaborated and it makes no sense to me as we we enjoy and, and can benefit from other pilot group successes and we can reset the bar for them and and so yeah this whole uh, journey here over the last several months was very 
uh, gratifying to me to have so many other pilot groups reach out and say, hey, we're here for you. You know, what can we do to help? Just reach out. And like you said, the Delta pilots uh, were were fantastic to us. And I hope going forward that it will be, uh, you know, a relationship of collaboration that, hey, how can we set the bar? How can we do better next time? How can we help you? Just really awesome. That's it from the Flight Deck a Leading Edge podcast. I'm Michael Wilson, and I look forward to seeing you out on the line. Take care. Well, we sure hope you like something you heard there. Honestly, with so many terrific labor radio shows and podcasts out there in the network now, it is a real challenge every week just to pick a few. So fair warning, we're going to be trying to get as many as possible into the show every week while sticking to our self-imposed 30-minute time limit. But hey, you are the listener, so let us know what you think. Drop us a note, laborradionetwork at gmail.com. If you heard anything you liked on today's show, we've got links to all the network shows, laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. The Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and me. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.